welcome to my den. Now, here's a guy with an interesting story. First, he wanted to be a priest, then wanted to own a furniture business. But he found himself instead working for over 15 years in the tech industry. And now he's written a book about artificial intelligence and its future influence on work. There you have Per Husted, my guest on today's show. Per's an interesting guy. He asked me to fast forward 20 years and think about what work would look like. Some of us may have trouble imagining that, considering all the talent challenges we're already facing right now. But Per made an interesting case for me. He said one of the skills for future leaders is going to be managing AI. That may seem a little bit strange to think about right now, but he made a powerful case for it because AI is going to influence work in legendary ways. It's going to impact not just global wealth by more than 10 times what it is now. It also has the feasibility of creating more efficiencies in every business. However, it's going to also present challenges for leaders and managers who are used to managing humans and instead will be quickly having to face the digital world. Pear takes us on a captivating journey of what work in the future will look like today. And I hope you'll learn from his experience of 15 years in finance and telco to really understand what the impact of AI will look like now in the very near future, and then also looking 20, 30, 40 years out. Pear's book, AI for CEOs, is a really captivating look at this topic. And if you're someone who is looking to the future and thinking about what should my business be preparing for, you have to check out his book because the tech he speaks of and the, uh, the, the demonstrations of AI and the uses that are already um, being adopted by many companies are going to impact your business in ways that you may not think about right now without expanding your mind to look into what Pear is talking about in his content. I will not delay this any further. So grab your time machines and let's hear from the amazing Pear Huston. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Hey, Pear, so good to see you again. How are you? Great. Thanks, and thanks for letting me join your podcast. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. And first of all, you you have to tell me about your mic because that is so cool. It's like that. It it looks like a, a furnace that's just is, like yeah. boiling over. <laughs> it's it's not hot. It's it's illuminating in red when it's on, uh, and then uh, when it's off, it's just uh, regular color. So that's a a gaming mic. I don't know if you play better uh, with red, but uh, that's how it is. So gaming. Wait, you said your son sold it to you? No, no, borrowed it. I have to pay a price later. I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to charge you rent on the mic? Yes, yeah. Uh, Does he do Twitch yeah. streaming? 
Sorry? Does he do Twitch streaming or like gaming streaming? He only watches it. He doesn't stream himself. Oh. Oh. So wait, why does he need a mic if he's just watching it? Because they talk to each other while they play. So they have oh. two screens. They have a screen with all the friends on where they chat and talk. And then they have the screen where they actually play. That's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I, I know my some of my friends love gaming too. And they're, yeah, they have, they have all these fancy setups. I don't know if your son has it, but like some of my friends have like three or four monitor screens. It's, it's a whole thing. Does he go, does he have an intense setup like that? Two screens and a very powerful computer. So, so uh, no heating in his room. That's not necessary. The computer can take take care of that. That's amazing. I, uh, my husband a couple years ago, I guess this was back in, what's this year? 2022. So this is like back in 2020. He built himself like his own computer. I wish I could show you a picture. It's like green and blue and lights up. It's a, you know, desktop tower, but it's built for gaming. Cause you know, he bought the highest Ram you could get or the highest uh, capacity and all these different memory cards and everything, and then built the computer. And it has like its own water cooling system that he installed. And it, it was a whole process. It fascinated me. I am I am not a tech person, which is why I, I'm glad to talk to you today, because you understand the world of AI and all this much better than I do. But is so did your son buy the computer? Or did he is he one of the weirdos like my husband who built something? I was see- semi-weirdo because he didn't build it himself but he he specced the computer and had somebody else build it for him so of course uh yeah some of what you said is true it, it illuminates uh, i think it's blue that that, that uh, the color has and so on so uh but not not building it himself he, he could probably but he didn't yeah that's so cool do you, what do you think about well let me back up do you have um so is is that your only son the 14 year old or do you have other kids i have, I have twins uh we have oh. twins uh, so he has a twin brother who has exactly the same setup, of course. Of course, they yes. so they both are gamers. Yeah, but it's it's more it's, it's not just gaming. It's it's just as well uh, as a social exercise for them uh, because you know in in their world gaming and uh, and then in the physical world it sort of mixes together. I'm so glad that you get that. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, what do you think about video gaming for, for teenagers? Like, what impact have you seen that have on your kids? Um, it's, it's sort of social in a different way than uh, when, I was a, uh, when I was a kid. So, so of, of course, there should be a, a limit to how much you, you should uh, game, but I don't see it as an evil as such. Um, for instance, uh, one of my uh, his his brother he has you know this Skylanders, and then I was I, I say to them uh, you don't play with it anymore. Why don't you give it to your uh, nephews? And he's ah, I don't want to do that. That's a, a vital part of my childhood, right? So so for them the childhood is uh, the cyber world and the physical world. Where from my generation you know that was different. It, it was of course only the physical world. Yeah. It's, it is such a different experience and I can definitely attest to that too. It's, you live so much of your life in those worlds or gaming with someone else or with a friend. And I actually had a, um, a client I was working with say, you know, he and his family were going to move to a different city and they asked their 11 year old daughter if that was going to disrupt her life, right? Like moving schools, moving locations, they were moving to a different part of the country and their 11 year old said, no, 
like, that's completely fine because all of her friends, you know, she would game with them. They're, they're connected through social media. They're connected through uh, online platforms, through Discord. Like, she didn't care about moving cities physically because the experience was going to be practically the same for her as when she was living in the city they were in. So it's, it's definitely an interesting, uh, it's something like I think is really natural, but you're right. Like so many, so many people think that's strange or don't, don't get the fact that Gen Z or, you know, your 14 year old twins live equally in the digital world, if not more so than in the physical world. It's true. And actually, we went to Berlin uh, this summer, and he, uh, one of the twin brothers, he has a really good cyber friend uh, from, from Germany in Berlin. And then I said to him, so when you come to Berlin, why don't we visit uh, your friend from Berlin? Because you spend so much time uh, online with him. But he didn't want to do that because that's what he, he didn't want to mix it up together because like, he was his online friend, and he had no interest in meeting him in the real world because then sort of things would be mixed up. Interesting. So he he chose not to not to connect with him in person or have lunch yes, or anything. Yes. It, not that they were uh, you know mad but to, uh, with each other or anything like this. Just uh, this is one domain, the, the the gaming domain with him, and he didn't need to meet him in the real world. Uh, and they still talk. So it's, yeah, it's it's you know different mindset than uh, than how we think in many ways. What do you think of that as a parent? Um, it's. I didn't want to push him because it was sort of that 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 was how they it, it functioned you know uh, he's a good friend uh, and and they are sort of cyber friends and if that works for them then this why should we then force them to meet in real life because uh, then we might break something that uh, isn't broken that's such an interesting perspective you're one of the first people who i've had this conversation with especially who's a parent who hasn't said something to the effect of, um, I, you know, I strictly limit my kids' time on video games that if they're not getting in-person, real, physical human connection outside of the digital world with those friends, something's wrong with them or they're not getting pushed hard enough. Like, how, how did you come to that conclusion that it was okay for them to only be cyber friends but not friends in person? Because I think it's it's logical. I mean, we are sort of I think as as humans, uh, we are in different modes, right? Uh, um, and some sometimes we are in work mode, and we can work uh, remotely. We can work at home. We can work in, in the office. And the same for them, right? When they sit in front of the front of their computer, I actually don't know if they are working uh, schoolwork, talking to the to their friends, or or they're gaming. And for them, it's sort of a mixture. Sometimes they play games, and then they talk about school jobs. And sometimes they are strictly gaming. And I think as long as they can manage this and they still have social activities in the real world, then it's fine. I love that you've come to that conclusion. Did did you start in a like a different place before, or not a different place, but a different perspective when they first started gaming? And now you've kind of, now that they're 14 and you've seen this as a norm, you've kind of shifted? Or, or have you always thought this way about gaming and social interaction? It sort of progressed because, of course, they didn't start with a PC. They started with, uh, I can't remember if it was PlayStation or one of those uh, gaming platforms. And then it sort of progressed from there. And, of course, the, the purely gaming platforms, that's a bit differently because then you only game uh, and you should set some limits on that one. But as soon as you move into the, to the, to the PC world and, and, and the online world, it's a bit different. So I don't know. Uh, I don't think it was a moment where you said, okay, that's how it is. I think it's like progression. 
Interesting. Yeah, I think it's almost like every parent needs to hear that because I was actually, I was having this conversation with a, um, a woman who I consider to be a, a dear mentor of mine a couple of weeks ago, and she's in her late fifties. I want to say maybe even early sixties, you know, she's at the end of retirement and, or close to it. And she had a, she has a son. He's a native digital. I think he's 27, maybe 28. And he spends all his time pretty much gaming on these, you know, social gaming platforms. He's, uh, he works, but just enough to pay the bills and get back to gaming. Like that, that's just oh. his life. And we were having this conversation. And one of the things that she shared with me is we were, we're having a conversation about the future of religion and how, you know, native digitals are backing off of the, we basically have a distrust for institutions just as a whole, right? Because we've seen so much hypocrisy and we've seen, you know, just, we, we've seen them cling to this idea of in-person gathering being the only way to engage in, you know, with other people in a religious format. And we were having this conversation about the world, not just of meta, but of these other games like Star Citizen and, you know, Call of Duty, like all of these games that have a social component. And I brought up this proposition with her, which I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on. No matter like what your religion is, what if these institutions could recognize that the majority of of kids, like, you know, kids meaning me and my and, and my siblings and people younger than me, if we're spending so much time in games, why haven't religious institutions recognized the need to shift into the virtual world? Like, what if you could host, you know, virtual um, whatever it is, chants, um, services, whatever the case might be, inside of the virtual world, kind of like Ariana, Ariana Grande did a Fortnite concert last year with people yeah. in, you know, VR headsets. Like what, why do you think institutions haven't recognized the need to transition into those platforms as almost a new frontier for, for reaching teenagers? It's true. Actually, because if, if you look into uh, smaller kids, boys, when they play, they play war games, but, but they don't play to kill each other. They actually do this to build up their morale and their ethics, right? Uh, you know, they play with the terms of what's good and evil. That, that's why they do this. Uh, and that's also what's happening in the online world, you know, uh, playing, playing those games. That's also good and evil. So there is a strong link, I think, between uh, religion and gaming, or there could be, because uh, on, on a higher level, they actually uh, address the same theme. Tell me more. This is this is fascinating. It is because uh, you know uh, um, small boys. The reason they fight uh, is is because they they are they are building up uh, their their ethics. You know their understanding of of good and evil, and 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 of course they interact with each other. Um, and you do the same thing when you grow older playing games because uh, many of the games that you mentioned before and, and also the others, then it, it is a matter of being good and evil. Of course, there's violence in the games, but it's not violence that the important part, that's sort of a, a facilitator for the real reason you play it is to have this sense of good and evil and also belonging if you play uh, with, a, with a team. So so actually, you could say that the online gaming is just an extension of, of this uh, mindset of, you know, uh, 
defining moral and uh, and and values. So of course you can link that into religion if you wanted to. I think the platform is there. If if you took that one step further and then put some sort of uh, that could be any religion because this is on, on such a high level that it doesn't really matter if it's Christianity or if it's uh, maybe not Buddhism, but but many of the other uh, religions could fit into that mindset. It almost what you're describing reminds me of what the purpose of sports is. It's I mean, of course, there's, you know, esports and gaming is a sport now, but I still think there's many people who put them in different categories, like soccer and football is in a different category from gaming. But I could, you know, I I could say with full confidence, most parents, if you ask them, what's the purpose of sports for your kids beyond, you know, exercise, a lot of them would tell you, and correct me if I'm wrong from, from your standpoint, but I feel like a lot of the parents I know would tell me that sports are a, a place where their kids get to work through learning what's good and evil, how to be on a team, how to build you know, camaraderie with people. And that's like a, that's an important second reason why parents involve their kids in sports. So it's almost like what you're saying is the same could translate to esports, to gaming, that there's there's a, an understanding from a young child's age that they could learn right and wrong, that they could learn how to engage socially in these other worlds, not just through like analog sports or what we think of when we say sports or most people do. It, am I- it has it has already done that. I think if you took some cameras uh, and put it up on an e on an um, uh, e gaming um, event and filmed the audience, you wouldn't know if they were watching a basketball uh, match or they were watching e gaming because how they react is exactly the same. So for them, it's it's sports and and some sports are electronic and some sports are physical. Um, but but it has come to that place uh, already. I completely agree. And I I do believe it's time for all religions or any institution, really, nonprofits, to realize the impact of these virtual worlds because they have more of our time, right? Like they have more native digital's time than most analog activities do, if you think about it, right? Like, well, how many hours would you say your your boys play games at, per day? Maybe two, three hours, something like this. No more than that. Probably around two uh, on on the regular days, and maybe three or four in the weekends, depending on what we're doing. And then they've got school for what six, seven hours a day. Six, seven hours, and then sports and friends, and on top of that. So it's not that they are they are passive, but but then again, they never watch television. Never, right. Ever. That's like their the esports or the gaming is their version or how they get that. I guess that yeah. part of their brain satisfied. It is. They, they don't need television. Uh, so so uh, they, there's nothing on, on in, in television that really interests them. They, they can see everything uh, uh, on, on their computers, and that's not that's enough for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I can totally relate. And I'm not even, I would say, like, compared to most of my generation, I probably game less or watch television less than, you know, most of my generation does, just because I'm spending so much time with uh, with the other category of human, with like with with folks like yourself who, and we're having these conversations about how to migrate the native analog world into the native digital. So I spend a whole lot less time than my friends, and even me. Like if you look at my screen time reports, it is. Let me actually let's see, let's see what my 
screen time report says. So in the last, well, even today, so, you know, I've been working all day, not on my phone. And even just between 6am and 7.30-ish this morning, an hour of that was on my phone, like probably in between eight different apps, you know, pulling reports on social media, engagement, like all of these things. And so it's, it's definitely just an interesting, an interesting world. But I, I cannot thank you enough, Pear, for that perspective. I think every parent needs to hear that. Like, so, so let me ask you this too, before we get into all my questions about your book, because I literally have like two whole pages written out, but, um, as a parent who may not understand, like other parents who may not understand what this 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 transformation really from analog to digital, like how it's affecting their kids and their brains, how how would you talk to a parent who who might be that parent saying, I can't seem to get Jimmy off of his video games. He needs to go write a book or, you know, write some poetry or journal or, you know, go, go get outside. Like what, what would you tell them? Um, it depends on if it's, if it's really, if it's really true that they're only gaming and that's all they do, of course that that's passive and, and shouldn't be the case. But, but if, if it's a bad, I think everything is about balance. So, but because if, if their life is, is balanced also in a, in a digital world, you can see, okay, sometimes they game, sometimes they talk to their, to their friends. So there's a social element in it. So it's not just passive. They're actually doing something. Um, then it's okay. But, but if you can see, I mean, it's like uh, alcohol, uh, you know, too much of everything is not good. And then the same with, with, uh, if he's only gaming and that's all he do, Counter-Strike, nothing else, then of course it's an issue because then we talk about uh, addictions, uh, and that's something else. But, but if, if they know that it's a balance, uh, if they can see that, uh, like in, in the case of my, uh, children, they talk to people from, uh, other children from, uh, from Germany and from, uh, from Sweden and so on, then I think it's differently because then, then they have found sort of their own domain. Uh, and it will always stay like that because you know they would move away from home at some time, and then they would they will continue what they're doing. So they can't really stop them. They, they it's like they they should find the right balance. Thank you for that. And I want to draw a distinction with what something you just said. So what you're essentially describing is that in the world of gaming, there are two distinct components. There's just gaming right? There's like just playing solo, gaming, having fun, being entertained. But then there's the second component, which is having conversations with other gamers, whether that's using a mic, like this red hot flaming one you have in front of you. So using a mic, actually talking to other gamers or chatting, you know, using a keyboard and chatting with them. But essentially what you're saying is if the if the kid and correct me if I'm wrong here, but if your kid is spending too much time on just the gaming, right, they're using it to isolate themselves, they're not interacting with anybody, that should be something that as a parent, you know, you you put some parameters around and say, you know, you really you really need to challenge yourself, get outside of of this complex where you're just you're just focused on yourself and your game. But if they're spending time in the social aspect of the digital world and they're talking with their friends and they're talking about life and they're, you know, discussing the game, essentially what you're saying is that that is balance. Like yeah. it, it, within the context of gaming, that's balance to have a social component and a playing component. Am I hearing that right? 
Yeah, but actually, I think you you could take it out from from the digital world and into the physical world because basically it's about being a balanced human being. Because if you're a balanced human being, then then you also know how to dose what you're doing in the online world, and then at some point you get tired of it because you need to go to table tennis or whatever you do. So so a balanced child would would be able to do this, but but a child who has issues might uh, escape into the Counter Strike. Playing alone world, of course you don't play alone in Counter Strike, but what and other games where you, know, where you isolate yourself and then you use the online world as a tool to enforce uh, your isolation. That's the issue. But but uh, if that's not what you're doing, then uh, you should let them uh, do it in a balanced way because they will no matter what. You can't change this. This is the uh, how the world is. Thank you for that. Yes, I think that's a really important distinction. So it's you know if your child is using gaming as an opportunity to distance themselves from people and from interactions, that's, that has to be balanced. That has to be, you know, they they need some help, right. To to balance their life. But if they're doing it for their social interaction, like you said, I mean, how many, how many people take going back to your childhood, for example, how many hours would you say on a given week, you might be watching television or going to the movies? Uh, In my childhood on yeah. Uh, yeah, in your childhood. Yeah, um, we okay. So I come from Denmark, and in my childhood, <laughs> we had one television channel, uh, and that Fair was enough. pretty bad, right? State-owned channel, so we didn't watch that much. Maybe two, three hours a day, no more than that, probably less. And then we went to the movies. So we played around uh, in the, in the street with the kids in the evening. Never watched television because there was nothing on. I know in in the US, it's a bit differently. Sure. Yeah. In the US, I don't I don't know what the averages were here. Probably probably more than that. But I'd say you still had, you know, probably one to two hours a day. I mean, if you think about a, a primetime TV show or even even looking a little bit closer in, so maybe not your generation, but the one right after, you know, people who now are in their, you know, mid 40s or, or late 30s, like thinking about how they might have spent their time, I would say two hours a day is a pretty reasonable expectation of anyone who's watching a show or going to see a movie two hours a day ish of, of TV. And, and like you said, your sons are not watching TV or movies or, or Netflix or whatever. They're gaming instead of that. It sounds like, right. Yes. So like that balance is still there. It's still entertainment. And, um, and you can say that that TV is, is a one way in entertainment. That's completely passive, you know, all you can do is sit on the couch uh, and can get in entertained. But but in the online world, it can be a two way street, and and so you have to interact and you have to be uh, you know on in a different way. Uh, so so there is a difference. And strategy, right? I mean, yeah. how you, in a lot of these games, you're having to craft your own strategy or build things or use your mental capacity. So I I just think it's wonderful, honestly. Like I think people people throw video games under the bus, but I would completely agree with you that the opportunity is exponential to like to harness that and and the good things it's doing too and the and what esports have become so i'm i'm so glad we had that portion of the conversation because i feel like everybody needs everybody in the world every parent needs to hear that perspective um so okay i want to learn more about you though you have such a fascinating background too but tell okay so this is the question i i like to ask i don't even know that i've asked many people on the show before, but, um, so if you just tell me something about you that like, 
not many people have heard or that that you you've never shared publicly before not some deep dark secret but you know what i mean what's what's something that people may not know about you um i can tell you that when i was you know getting back to the childhood when i was six years old i made my first career choice and that was to be a priest and the reason i wanted to be a priest was because i thought they only worked on sundays so i can have six days off <laughs> i love that how old were you Six, yeah, and because our neighbor was was the local priest, so I watched him oh, no. go, going Bear to work on Sundays, so and I thought, hey, that's great. He can spend a lot of time in his uh, garden doing whatever he wanted to. So, uh, so that was my first career choice. Of course, that changed. I think a bit I lost afterwards. your audio. Can you hear me now? I can. I think you're back. Okay. Yeah, it said yeah. it was reconnecting there for a second. Okay, so I was. Uh, you were telling me about when you wanted to be a priest. How old were you? I was six. I think I wanted to be a priest for about half a year until I realized the true, the true consequences of, of, of that career choice. Not that it's oh bad to gosh. be a priest, but it's, it wouldn't work for me. So, okay. So let me get this straight. So when you were six, you wanted to be a priest because you could have six, or you thought you could have six days off and only work one day. And now your whole career is an AI to make things more efficient. So basically you're just lazy. Yes. <laughs> but in, the, in a different way. Right? I love that. My husband always says his his whole goal in life is to be as lazy as possible because it teaches it teaches him how to do things better and more efficiently. Like so. Anyway, I, that's amazing. Tell me more about this. Why did you Why did you want to be a priest? Yeah, but that was it because you know I, I was studying this this guy and he was living in a nice house and uh, you know uh, going going to the church and I, I and I thought okay I can do that you just go to the church and then uh, and then I knew of course sometimes people die and he has to have a funeral but that doesn't happen that often so I thought okay that's fine uh, I, I could do that so so no reflection on what you actually do as a priest and I would probably not be a very good priest because uh, you know that wouldn't be a fit for me but uh, you know. That was my first choice. And that's after that, amazing. I wanted to sell furniture, but that's different. Uh, I didn't go for that either. <laughs> I love, that is so amazing. I, it's got me even thinking about what I wanted to be when I was a kid. I, my sister, so we, we came up with all sorts of interesting ideas. My younger sister said she wanted to be a ballerina pilot. Um, okay. which basically was the equivalent of she thought in her seven-year-old brain or whatever this was, that she could be a pilot, but that during, you know, once the, once the plane took off and everything was in order, she could put her point shoes on and dance up and down the aisles and give the whole, you know, plane a show. And that was her idea of a great career. So you never know, maybe we should have a new industry. That's the, uh, the ballerina pilots. Yes, that'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember what, what I wanted to be. I think I was pretty boring. I, I do know, like, as I got older, I wanted to be a geologist and I would make a terrible geologist, but I, I just loved the idea of science and research. And, um, and anyway, I don't know what got me to geologist. Maybe it was, maybe it was the career in science that felt the least daunting <laughs> compared to, I don't know, astrophysics or something like that. So, uh, but I, it's always fun to look back on, on those career choices. <laughs> did you have any, did you have siblings growing up? Yes. Yes. Uh, I, I'm the oldest. So I have a, a brother and a sister who's uh, younger than me. That's how far are you apart? Four years and four years. Oh, so perfectly I, I'm eight years older than my, my youngest brother and then uh, four years older than my sister. 
That's so cool. That's so cool. Do you have any fond memories from growing up? Uh, yeah, of course, uh, a lot with them. Uh, you know, um, I ju I'm just trying to think uh, about their career choices, what they wanted to be. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't have any good stories like that for for on on their behalf. I would say that I've heard of. You mean they weren't remember. as crazy as my sister who wanted to be a ballerina pilot? <laughs> I can tell you that one of my kids right now he wants to uh, review uh, Michelin restaurants because he thinks that'll be a great job. He has to fly around the world and eat at the best restaurants in the world and get paid for it. So that's his aim in life. Oh wait, that's his aim, like his goal. But he doesn't. He that's not what he does right now. No, no. But he wants okay. to. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. That would be a fantastic job. Just go around and test things. Speaking of that, did you know that there's an entire committee that tests roller coasters? Like they fly all around the world and just test roller coasters. Uh, yeah, probably. So yeah, I, I, I met them. Yeah. I met like this. I was in an amusement park last year and I met this group of people. It was close to closing time. Like, you know, theme park closed at 8 p.m. and they were there like 7.50 and they had a bunch of signs and they were coming in and I stopped, my family stopped and asked them, you know, what do you do? Because it looked like they were, they were getting let in behind the scenes. You know, the, the attendants were opening the roller coasters back up for them and, and all this. And there were probably 20 of them and they kind of spread out and went all over the park to the newest coasters that had just opened. And we got to talking with one of them and she said, yeah, her job is to fly around the world and rate roller coasters as I guess part of their, the bureau, it's some, it's some roller coaster rating bureau or something like that. And they rate the experience compared to other coasters around the world. I thought, what a cool job is that? Yeah. <laughs> to just be go around to theme parks and rate the roller coasters. But anyway, I don't know if they get paid or if it's something volunteer, but either way, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Do you like roller coasters or, or not? Um, I used to, but but uh, I'm not into that much uh, right now. More more like uh, the the water part I like a lot, but not the roller coasters. Not that oh, I dislike yeah. them. I just don't, don't focus on them. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Water parks are fun too. Yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. Well, okay, I have so many questions about your book. Um, I yeah, I I think this is such an interesting topic about artificial intelligence and where it's headed. And I can imagine like, you've got to get so many questions about tactical AI, right? Like very, very tactical base level AI and how it's impacting businesses. But I really would love to better understand a couple parts of the book. Um, and so first of all, when you talk about AI, something that really stood out to me is that you talk about it in terms of five levels, right? Yes. Like five levels of AI. And, and I found myself, as I was reading the book, I found myself thinking like, at what point is my business, you know, and, and most companies that I see at what level it, are, are most businesses in at least my country, maybe even the world, because the levels you're talking about span into, you know, thinking about AI as a discipline, as a, you know, you, you talked about a self or a, a, an employless business. So anyway, as I was reading your book, I, I couldn't help but think about Star Trek and like the future of robotics and AI and, and all of these things. So 
Can you just start me there and like walk me through what these five levels of AI AI are? Yes, yes. Actually, we should start a bit different uh, place because when, when you look into an, 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 any organization today, right, it, it consists, of course, of people and, and, and different assets. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, uh, the, the total knowledge uh, of whatever organization you have is within uh, the experience and minds of, of the humans who work in this organization. Um, and now AI, uh, uh, also uh, I write in my book that, uh, that you should distinguish between AI and IT. It's two different things because uh, IT is an information technology and AI uh, is a knowledge uh, technology and that's two different things. So, so basically what AI is, is a structured way of working with knowledge. Uh, and what, what you see is you can compare it to phones, in the old days, uh, we didn't uh, say, uh, I'm going to call you by uh, my landline uh, phone because uh, everybody, every phone was a landline phone. So you just, uh, you know, that was a phone. And then mobile phone, phones came along. And then you have to distinguish between uh, two kinds of phones. You had a, a mobile phone and you had a landline phone. Um, and I think the same uh, picture can be transformed into uh, how you work with knowledge. Because right now, uh, we have been used to thinking about knowledge as something that is within uh, the, our, our heads. Uh, but, but very soon, and actually this is happening already, then knowledge is something that is also automated and lives in the AI world. And that's where, where the, the five different levels actually start, because what you would see is that we would work as humans together with AI in some sort uh, of, of partnership. And then uh, as the AI progresses uh, and becomes more and more... Um, efficient and smarter, then there would be more and more tasks that can be taken over uh, by AI. And then at some point, uh, some organizations would reach a point where they would become uh, employeeless because the tasks that uh, this organization has been set up upon to be uh, hand handling uh, can actually be handled by the total sum of AI in this uh, business. So I, I love that picture of what you're describing. So what you're saying is every company is on a progression from where they are currently into whatever this this future is that you're describing where the companies or a majority of companies or and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here correct me if I'm wrong but where eventually at some point in the future a good majority of businesses will have the at least the capability to be employee less organizations meaning that they're completely run by AI that is essentially has learned enough of their processes and has enough yeah. knowledge to run the business as efficiently, if not more efficiently than if it had humans involved. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. yes. Uh, so you can look into one business function like a, like a call center. Um, so, so today uh, you could have some tasks in a call center that could be handled by AI. And this is possible already. Uh, so AI can do like simple phone uh, phone conversations. Actually, you can have AI calling up somebody and uh, engage in, in a conversation. So, so that's a task that can be removed uh, or moved from a personal task to an AI task. And then as, as the AI becomes more and more uh, capable, then it can uh, take over not just the, the calling part, but, but a higher uh, level of, of uh, functions. Um, 
and then maybe at some point uh, all of the tasks that you do in a call center would be uh, it would be possible for AI to do and then you would redefine how uh, your call center would work because the difference between uh, humans and AI and actually this is true for all technology is there's there's no limits on what you can do in an AI uh, driven call center because then the same call center could hand, handle a hundred thousand uh, or a million uh, calls a day because AI would be able to handle everything. So, so and that 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 would be the the, the primary driver because uh, we as humans uh, is a resource in in a in a business, but we also a scarce resource. So, uh, as as many tasks as you can remove from an organization that is handled by uh, humans, the more scalability you build into your organization. And I'm talking from a management perspective. Not not from an employee perspective. So so it means that you have the possibility to making your business much more um, uh, scalable uh, and and creating much more value. That that's the reason why some people say that that the value on earth will be um, multiplied by ten once you have uh, implemented AI. Meaning that the the world as such will be ten times richer than we are today. Um, because of course there's many consequences of this uh, having. Uh, companies working this way, uh, but that's one of them. I, I There's so much to unpack here, but I want to go back to something because I'm so glad you brought up the example of the call center. And I'm going to ask uh, selfishly here for a second of, of a very specific example of this. So um, one of the companies that I have worked with in the past, <clears throat> we were having this conversation specifically about a call center about their call center. And this is an interesting thing. I'm very curious to get your perspective. So I'm going to make up fake numbers here, but let's say that during the last two years of COVID, a this you know organization was trying to convert, they're an attraction, right? So they're selling tickets. They're yeah. trying to convert more of their processes or more of their purchases to online versus people calling into the call center to purchase tickets or to make changes to their their packages etc so they what they found was interesting though so in the first year of covid they were able to get again making up fake numbers but let's say 20% more people to purchase tickets online than through other methods but then as of the past calendar year actually not calendar year i think 12 months um as of you know march of this year versus march of last year their call center percentage the percentage of tickets that are being sold has plateaued so they're at you know making up numbers here again, but let's say they they were at 18% of tickets in, um, or t- let me back up. So in 2019, let's say they ha- they were selling 30% of their tickets on uh, through the call center by the next year. So 2021, they were selling 18%. So a pretty, pretty significant jump in the number of online tickets. So 18% in the call center. Well, this year it's 18% again. And they're trying to figure out like, what do we do to decrease the call center? Like what, how do we automate this process? And they're kind of stuck. They just want to leave it as it is and keep, you know, keep the call center the way it functions and and all of that. What would you say is a, an AI solution that can help them tip, tip that forward where they're not focused or not concentrated so much on these human, you know, the human call center, the way it is now, but tip everything toward online or toward automated processes. Actually, I think there will be a tipping point because um, as soon as the AI becomes smart enough, then uh, the AI can can perform much better service 
then it's possible to do online. Because if, if you have an, uh, people call into a call center because they have questions uh, and, and they, they need to, uh, to, to be helped to do whatever they want to do and they like to interact uh, with, with, uh, with a human. If, if you can mimic that with, with AI and you can actually help them, then uh, you would get a much better experience as a person. Then, then I think there's a lot of people uh, who would prefer to call in and talk to an AI that can, can actually give them a much better and much more dedicated customer service and maybe also products than you would be able to do online because online has to be a bit uh, structured in how it works. You know, the, the flows on the website is, is pretty defined uh, by, by, um, by default because that's how the system has been set up. But if you can get a system to talk to you that you can explain uh, what your what your problems are and it, it, the AI can help you in that way, then you would get a much better experience. So I think it'll tip around and 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 eventually web will go down and and those kind of bots will be much more popular. Does that tech that you're talking about with AI and the call center and having a better experience does that exist already? And is there like an example of a company that's doing that really well? It's getting there. I know that uh, IBM and McDonald's, they are using uh, uh, this technology to test uh, McDonald's drive-ins where you actually talk to AI uh, when you do the order. And of course, that's pretty simple because uh, uh, there's a limit on, on uh, the complication or, or, or the combinations you can order in a, in a McDonald's, but that's a starting point and that's the point of everything, right? So if you can train this AI to do this in McDonald's and IBM can make this work, then they can take much more complex uh, tasks afterwards. And then once you have this learning from, from one outlet, then it can be duplicated into many different uh, elements very soon. So basically what you're saying is the push with AI may not be to replace, at least in this example, to replace the call center, but it's replacing the employees in the call center. So you're essentially designing AI. You're you're not saying those, you know, let's say the majority of the customers buying tickets through the call center are in their 60s and they don't they don't feel comfortable, you know, using an app or using uh, the Web or on their phone. So they call the call center. So what you're saying is you're not necessarily replacing the call center. There's still an ability for for a customer to call, but you're replacing the, the person that they reach. With some with an AI system that can better understand their needs, yes, exactly. Um, Interesting. So I think that, that that would definitely happen because also call centers are expensive, right? Uh, I think uh, I've seen some numbers. It's probably I think it costs thirty five dollars to pick up the phone in a call center, basically, uh, for for everybody. So so it, it's 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 expensive, uh, and and many, you have many call centers because you need to have them. Uh, but I think uh, the, the many businesses don't look at, at call centers as an asset. It, 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 they look at it as something that they need to have, but they don't maybe not appreciate the value that they create as much, it, of course, depending on, on the business, but because they're so expensive. But if you can get um, AI to, to, to take over those tasks and you can see you, you can actually have a better customer experience cheaper, then uh, that will shift. Yeah, I'd be really, really curious to hear your thoughts on which specific technologies that companies should be looking into for that sort of call center problem solving. Because I know when I, there are very few companies that I call who have an AI assistant, at least now that I've experienced, who can assist 
in a way that is equally as helpful as a person. Now, granted, sometimes you get to the people and they're way less helpful than an, yeah. than an AI um, could be. But do you, so, so you said a second ago, we're not, we're getting to that point where it, it can be helpful, but are, would you say that we're there yet in certain industries or are we just still on the, the road? Um, the IBM McDonald's case is probably uh, the, the leading example right now because uh, the, the, as I said, there's a limit of how many combinations of food you can order. So it's easier to train the AI to, to uh, understand this mindset. Uh, and then of course, like everything else, it will grow and then uh, the same AI can be used and applied in different scenarios for different uh, businesses. And then it will uh, learn more and more and, and be able to detect uh, the meaning of what we want uh, in in better ways. So it's probably so five years ahead uh, from now before okay. it, it it really would break in. Do you know if the the IBM and McDonald's systems are are they developed in house or are they are, is this a company that they're using that they've outsourced the AI build to? Uh, uh, IBM has has built it for McDonald's. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, so, so to, to recap that specific example with the call center. So it seems like you would think that the tech exists right now for companies who do basic limited number of options, um, tasks to implement AI. So if you're, say there's a package, for example, and you can only have a limited number of packages, let's take the attraction example again. So you can either buy, you know, a day pass to the attraction, or you can buy a season pass, or you can buy a combination. Maybe it's, you know, a special event with a day pass, or you have a, a, a discount code that if there's only a limited, like a finite number of transactions, then that's something the tech already exists for, the AI yeah, already exists for? What you, you can compare it to when, when you call a, a um, um, support center, an IT support center, then they have a categorization. They call it first, second, and third level support, right? And, and it's the same terminology. So first level, that's the basic uh, questions. You know, do we want to do this and this? It's it's like a screening. So uh, and and th- that would be where the AI would start at first, and that's basically where IBM and McDonald's is right now. Then you have second level, that's more uh, complex, but but people still uh, understand it. And third level, that's where you talk to the experts or the developers who's who's been doing uh, the stuff. And and AI would be uh, progressingly in that direction as well in in the call centers. So maybe now uh, we are at, at the first level, but soon we would be uh, have AI that would be able to do second and third level as well. Makes complete sense. And thank you for being, for going tactical with me for a second, because I know sometimes, and I find this when I talk about native digital and native analog and ways of doing business, it's it's a whole lot easier to grasp the the tactical things first before thinking about the, the future vision or where we're headed and how to prepare for that. So that's where I want to go next. I really want to pick your brain on this. So to, to shift into the future, like not thinking about how do we, you know, as a very tactical example, again, like I've replaced my need to have a virtual assistant with Calendly because now Calendly schedules all of my meetings and people can easily go in there and book time with me. And as you saw, even in preparation for this recording, there's a whole series of emails set up in a cadence to, you know, I, I'm not sending those out directly and an assistant of mine is not doing that. It's, it's all automated. So, but that's very tactical. So 
help me understand this future. So can you can you walk me through those levels, like levels starting with a tactical all the way through level five of what the progression will be in AI in the coming years? Yes. Um, so, so we can take another example. Uh, do you know uh, the concept of uh, dropshipping uh, as a, a way of selling online? Yes. It's amazing yes. what they've done. Yes. Okay. So, so basically what, what dropshipping is, is that you have a company that's very good at doing marketing. So it, it attracts uh, users to their website and then they sell products, but they don't sell their own products. Uh, they sell third-party products and, it, and they don't stock them. They order them uh, after they have sold them. So it means that they, they don't have any inventory. Um, that would probably be, be a business that would be uh, employees first uh, because actually all the steps uh, that you do in dropshipping are some uh, elements that can be automated in some degree and also the intelligence uh, on top of that can also soon be automated because if you're good at marketing then it means that you have to be good at identifying uh, your target groups how to communicate with them uh, everything you do with uh, with you know in in the google world with uh, ads and so on that can be automated by ai and then uh, how to create uh, the right selling content can also be automated on your website and, and finding the right product and finding the right fit for the people that you can reach uh, in, your, in your target group with your marketing can also be automated and managed by AI. So you can build a system that can understand how to market, uh, how to communicate on your website and how to buy the right products for the right places um, by AI very soon. And, and the interesting part about this is that it's a very simple business as such, but it's also a very scalable business because uh, if you can get this ecosystem up and running, then the AI will learn uh, where are the new opportunities and they, they, then it can see, okay, here in Spain, I can sell this and then it will test, can I sell the same in France? If I can, then it will push for France, uh, for the French market. Uh, and and um, AI is very good at understanding complexity uh, in patterns. So it, it can detect, uh, you know, there's a target here in the northern part of France who is very specifically interested in those products here. So I should match them and they're not so price sensitive so I can raise the price. All this complexity uh, is very difficult for a human to understand, but AI can do this. So AI can, in, in a dropshipping world, can probably outcompete any person very fast and very soon. So in the example of drop shipping, which I think most people are familiar with, but maybe maybe most people aren't familiar with the back end of how it works. So um, I actually, <laughs> I ran a drop shipping business on Amazon a couple years ago that completely flopped because of supply chain issues in, in China. But um, with the, so with the drop shipping example and that type of automated system where, you know, the products, the markets are being self-selected, the shipping is automated, no one holds inventory, all that. What industry is that model coming for next? Like, where do you see AI taking taking over? Like, what industry is that going to impact next? So, so uh, that that would be like the the first because uh, it it's a simple uh, element where uh, AI is very good at understanding uh, complexity uh, and and seeing patterns. So, so um, uh, you know, a lot of those businesses where where you have um, where in in the retail uh, online world will will be the next element because. Then learn, growing from dropshipping, you would then grow into a, a higher value element of online sales probably. So, so I, I see that as the next step um, after that. 
So uh, you're it, saying it, that it, it has you have to look. Uh, it it will be industries where uh, that are uh, uh, heavily on uh, knowledge today, knowledge that that that, that can be transformed into uh, AI. Uh, th- that would be the the people in risk if you take the personal perspective of getting uh, replaced by AI. Gotcha. So in terms of your the the levels you describe in the book, so I noticed you talk about, you know, level four or the bottom level, like the bottom of the pyramid being operating strategies. And then the one on top of it is functional. And then the one on top of that is business strategies. And then the very top top level is corporate strategy. So yes. where is where is drop shipping on that, you know, in terms of those levels, at what what point it has it reached as an industry? Maybe I should if we go back to the call center, uh, then then I can explain the different elements because uh, what, yes, what we just talk, talked about uh, first was the level 1 where you have like the screening, you use AI for screening phone calls and then the the less complicated one is managed by AI and then the more uh, difficult ones are then passed on to a person. So that's that's the the lowest level, right? So where AI is actually just replacing a task that a human is doing. And then the next step is that AI is taking over the function as a call center. Uh, And then it's actually doing the same as as people would do. But because there's no limitations on AI afterwards, then you would say it doesn't actually make sense to organize a call center based upon if it was a human organization because the perspective of what AI can do is different. So you would reconfigure your business uh, so it fits into what AI can do because now you have taking uh, the human uh, limitation, which it is, out of the equation so you can do different things with AI. Uh, and, and, that's, and then you can do this on one business screen, uh, stream, right? So you have sort of fixed the call center part of your business. And then you would look into different uh, uh, parts of your business as well. And then at some point, some businesses would reach a point where uh, they have gone through that journey in every part of their business. And then they have become this uh, employee stage, um, which I mentioned in the book. So that leads me what what you just said about your base, you're essentially reconfiguring your business based on AI capabilities, not on human. What, how does that impact leadership? Like what, what qualities or skills in, let's say, looking 10 years out from now, if AI has, has progressed to the point where it's now taken over, say the majority of businesses are using AI in this tactical way, even just the tactical, not even up to the employless organization, but what types of skills or qualities are our employers going to have to look for in the types of leaders they're looking for based on how you manage AI versus managing humans? But yeah, actually you have to have uh, people who are willing to work with AI as a colleague. And it's like uh, we as persons have different skill sets and, and AI would have different skill sets um, that that persons uh, should work together with. Of course, AI can never be social. There's many functions that AI would never be able to do, uh, social functions and, and you know, taking care of, of, of people in hospitals and so on. So, but, but, but some uh, of, of those elements I mentioned before that, that requires knowledge can be taken uh, care of by AI. So you would have like a situation where uh, some of the tasks that is necessary to be performed is performed by uh, humans and some with AI, but they would work together in some sort of uh, partnership. Um, so you have to uh, look into uh, people who understand how to use the technology 
um, in a non-offensive way or who's open to uh, seeing what it, it can uh, bring. So you have to have a very open mindset, I would say, as a person to do this uh, and not feel threatened, even though that would probably be difficult because you can see that AI is, is doing a lot of change. But still, if you had to get the best out of it, then you have to have an open mindset as an employee. So interesting. So if if I'm someone who's, say, looking out 10 years and thinking about how do I design a business that's ready for this AI, like that's that's capable of uh, like having people on my team who are open to this relationship or this partnership as you describe it. What changes do I need to be making now? Or at least what do I need to be thinking about? Uh, I think you have to have people who are uh, curious in the in their mindset and and don't have so many uh, limitations you know people who are who are willing to do something that is not as expected uh, so so people who are not putting themselves in a box and saying yes i'm an accountant i'm going to be an accountant for the next 70 years but people who say this yes i might have an accounting degree but i actually think, think that sales is is fun so let's try this uh, even though that uh, that's not what i was trained for so, so people who has that kind of mindset would probably work better because they would never understand the technology as well. But I think uh, their, their personality is probably more important than their skill set. I can just see it now like a slogan that's curiosity is your most important leadership trait. <laughs> I love I love that that idea of of curiosity. I mean it's it's true on a human level, right? Like if you're managing employees and you want to get to know them as humans and get to understand their working styles and their perspectives, you have to be a curious leader to do that well. So but what I hear you saying is curiosity takes on a whole different dimension. It's almost like having curiosity and willingness to always be shifting, a willingness to, to learn new skills, to learn different industries, to learn different positions, not be set in a in a specific way of thinking. Like you mentioned, like you, you can no longer employ as effectively or you will no longer be able to employ as effectively people who say, I'm going to be blank for 40 years. I'm going to be an accountant. I'm going to be a blank. You have to employ someone who is curious about different ways of thinking or or how you know how things move and change and shift. Am I am I getting that similar exactly. to what you were just saying? Yes, yes, yes. And then the other dimension is, you know, there's always the talk about management and leadership. And 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 uh leadership is going to win so much more over management here uh, because management will become less less important because management is sort of keeping track on, on everything what's going on and the accountant and, and all that part will be taken care of by AI uh, no matter what so you don't have to focus on that so so you can spend your time uh, uh, you know developing your people and and uh, a lot of the tasks that you do today in a business is something you have to do to, get, to make the business run, but it's not, not what you have been hired to do. You actually want to do something else. So, so AI would set uh, you free to do a lot of the things that are really interesting, that, that you think is very, uh, you know, what, what you live for and uh, not what you have to do. Mm, 
Yeah, that's that's so good. Well, and it's even now that's what I see as success factors with most employees, you know, not, not nonetheless with AI or the integration there, but with employees, you know, we talk all the time in in the HR world or I hate the term HR, but you know what I mean in in the world of dealing with humans and and humans in organizations and human capital like this is the conversation that we have to have about curiosity and leadership over management all the time. But again, what I hear you saying is honestly a native digital way of thinking. It's it's those terms, management, leadership, they're getting redefined as we speak because not, you know, I talk a lot about how Gen Z is a new category of human. Well, guess what's another category of human we're about to see in 10 to 15 years? AI, like it's yeah. it's a new category. Star Trek's been telling us that for years, right? Like there will be a point at which we've got we have we have robots, we have um, non physical form AI that's going to have as much not necessarily a personality, but as much of a a presence in our corporations as currently humans do. What would you say that that's like a is that a way of thinking about it or what would you add to that? Yes, yes, actually. Do do you know the the French designer Philip Stark? No. Okay, so he's he's a pretty famous uh, uh, French designer. He's been doing some avant-garde furniture, and he's actually been uh, trying to work with uh, with AI to create a chair. Uh, and he's he's created a chair. I think actually it's called the AI, something like that. But but the point is, this chair was was created together with his team and a, and a, AI. So the AI algorithm came up with some ideas or or, or design uh, based on some specifications. Uh, I think it was made in in plastic. And then the team would look into it, and and, and of course you know it was a French team, so they have high uh, aesthetic standards. So, so they knew what they wanted, and they sort of had a, a cooperation. The AI would then produce, maybe it could produce 200 different prototypes. Uh, and then they could look into it and say, okay, this is actually good. And that's sort of how the, the it would work, you know. And, and because AI doesn't have the same uh, uh, social and historical background as we have, uh, which in some ways is a limitation. So when you, when you ask AI to define uh, what a chair is, it would define it on its own parameters. And it's not something that, that's based in, in our cultural understanding of how a chair should function. It's on how it sees it. So it also uh, challenges uh, the concept of many things when you work in, in AI in that way. And that's true for chairs, but it's also true for anything else. What is the name of this artist again? It's called Philip Stark. Okay, I'm going to have to get that spelling from you. I'm really curious to look yes. look him up. That's fascinating. I don't know if this chair is good looking or not. I'll be... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is looking a bit strange. I wouldn't buy it. I would say that. But but it is. I think it's called the AI. The AI. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Well, I mean, heck, if it's ugly and it was designed by AI and you can get 200 prototypes out, imagine what that tech will be able to do in a year from now or two years from now. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's actually the one one of the things too. Also, because uh, right now, uh, when when we get our products uh, as 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 humans, then we go to IKEA and then we get the same setup. But but with AI, then we can get personalized product that has also been mass produced because it'll be just as cheap to produce uh, one specific chair just for your preference and mine as it would be uh, in in a mass produced way if if, if the production line is uh, fully automated. 
Um, so it would give us some other limitations, other possibilities as humans, because we can then design everything we want to, and it's not going to be expensive because it costs the same to produce your specific chair as it would be if you got a cheap IKEA chair. That it sounds like an amazing world we're headed towards, and well, and hence your example of it could make the world ten times richer with essentially this 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 technology because you can personalize which is heck that's the way the whole world's heading to it's something you know gen z now expects out of work and life and and consumer goods and i know some companies are doing it very expensively right now um you know when you can customize a car for example but you can only have the digital rendering and it's still only certain features of it versus what i hear you describing where who knows the example of a chair might eventually be something as expensive as a car or a plane or you know any of those those uh higher dollar items that are less uh you don't think of as as the as i guess able to customize because currently it is so expensive it's true yeah so it it will exactly what you're saying it will be very different and we would have uh, much more choices to be to to live our lives the way we want to live it it, it gives us freedom uh, but of course um it comes with a price because not as many people will, will work, but we would have a much more freer life. I think we would have to redefine ourselves in, 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 uh, in different ways. So let me ask you this then, Per. So if I'm a company trying to get from level one to level four, like I'm trying to not just use AI right now for tactical things, you know, operating things. I'm trying to get to where it literally impacts my corporate strategy, get toward that employless organization. What do I need to be doing right now? I think you have to go through all the steps because uh, this is not something you can, you cannot just do it in a, in a day. You would, you would have to, it has to grow in, in your company and, and uh, the AI has to learn from, from many different sources because uh, it's like I, I talk about artificial um, corporate knowledge and it's sort of, uh, you, you should create uh, like a mindset of uh, your, your company has a, a corporate knowledge that is the sum of what your AI would know. It would know something from uh, working with the, with the call center, but it would also know something working from your risk management department if you're a bank or uh, product management if you are something else. So, so and, and all this information about what it takes to run your company should be uh, accessible across the different AI algorithms. That's how it would learn and become uh, more and more capable. So it's, you say that you teach AI, so you have to build a, a flow where you teach your AI to help you run your business in many different ways. And is so I know with with Cognifirm with your company that's you you're you're starting to help companies build this type of thinking into their organization. Is is that what Cognifirm's purpose is? Yes, yes. So so we start with a digital assistant that helps you perform online tasks. So uh, right now you you configure those tasks uh, yourself. You say. Um, uh, I'm going into, uh, for instance, every Friday I have to submit uh, timesheets because uh, that's what we do. Um, so, so our assistant can help people, uh, you know, notify them if they haven't submitted timesheets or or actually pre-suggest what they should do. And after submitting timesheets, they should do something else, send an email and so on. So, so that's what we do uh, right now, and that would be the foundation to build uh, AI 
into that so that uh, it will become more intelligent. It would learn what you're doing and then it would suggest, okay, I can see your next uh, next probable move would be to do this. Like in, in your instance, for instance, in, in your job, you would get an assistant that would help you uh, understand what you're doing and then uh, come with suggestions on, okay, I can see that you're doing this. Uh, you probably need to do this step afterwards. Okay, so it's like a it's like a first step. Truly, what you what you've got or what you're you've built is truly a digital assistant that prompts you as a human to do you know X Y Z activity after a trigger happens, right? Yes. So like a tr- trigger point is this. Maybe that's a day of the week or um, a certain behavior, and then it triggers the next action or reminds you. What what will it be in the future? Like, how does someone go? How does AI go from being a, an assistant to being a, a leader, or or like an, more of an employee than just a, a something that's assisting you with tasks? Because then uh, we we saw we we're following the same path as I as I, I explained with the, with the five different steps. Because then the AI would then learn more and more about what you do, and then it can predict and help you in in more complicated ways uh, doing some of your online tasks um so so uh, but in order for it to do so it uh, we we it needs data uh, so it understands how you perform and what you're doing so it it can sort of it it would uh, what it ai would do is it would detect what you're doing and then it would um uh, make some patterns and say okay i can see that you're doing this and then when you start doing a similar task it will recognize okay she's doing this then uh, the next thing she's going to do is this task here so so we are setting up a, an environment where ai can learn uh, about you so it can help you become better in in what you do so what you're saying is everyone everywhere if they expect to <clears throat> if they expect their companies to be relevant to ai in the future needs to start with something like this now with an assistant that can begin learning their behavior patterns and and building this predictive knowledge base on on you as a person so that as the tech gets better it already has your your behavior patterns in it and it's yes. and it's understanding those and so in 5 years when the tech is incredibly better it's progressing with you instead of having to start from from ground zero would that be fair yeah. Exactly. I'm going to go start using AI. <laughs> this is this is so interesting. So like, okay, so let's get to ethical questions here for a second, because I know what so many people are going to be thinking is, well, if AI is going to get to this point, and this is the question we've been asking for ages, if AI gets to a point where it is more intelligent or even just equally intelligent as, as humans... What is the impact going to be on jobs, and how do we how do we deal with that ethically as as human beings? Yeah, I think um, the the example I mentioned before with AI being able to create ten times as as much value as we have today, it also means that uh, we we don't need people to create value. Uh, so 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 we don't need uh, people to have jobs to create value for other people. We don't, uh, so so. I think it's more like redefining our purpose as human beings more than jobs because uh, the, the value will be there, but you don't have, it's like everybody wins in lotto. 
Uh, and and the only lot of millionaires that are, are happy ones are the ones who have some sense of purpose uh, beforehand because then they they are, are able of of controlling uh, their life they don't just spend all the money on uh, fancy cars or whatever so so we would have a, a mindset where we all be lot of millionaires uh, and we have to learn uh, what that means for all of us I don't want to skip past something you just said so you you literally just said which I think is so interesting that we are having, people are going to have to redefine their value apart from their job or what they do. Because what you're saying is that the AI is going to create exponential value, like 10 times the amount of wealth. So humans are not going to have, our lives just aren't going to look the same. Like, would you say that that's, I'm trying to think of a comparison with this, or maybe you'd have a better illustration, but to me, this difference between what we have now and what we'll have when AI is completely integrated with human beings seems almost as stark a contrast, or if not more, than if you take the comparison between, say, the... um, in America, the pilgrims who went out west and were, you know, they had to do all their own farming. There was no importation of goods. You know, it was it was very every every single person had to farm in order to eat. And there wasn't a lot of commerce happening or a lot of division of labor. Um, compare, so comparing pilgrims to modern day humans and the fact that, you know, thousands of people can make a, an income creating content, for example, is or is that like the type of stark difference we're looking at between, say, pilgrims to modern day humans versus modern day humans to where AI is going to take us when it's fully integrated? Yeah, or even maybe, maybe further than that. I, I think we, we would, uh, we I hope we would be more social because then, uh, I mean, uh, what we would then spend our time with, it, it will be with, with our families and, and, and you know, doing stuff that is, that is good for us, hopefully. Uh, you know, my mother, she's uh, 80 years old and she lives uh, three and a half uh, hours from where I live. So if I had no uh, economical um, limits, then I would visit her more often than I do, right? So so in, in the AI world, uh, I would spend as much time with her as I could uh, because she's still fresh, but uh, who knows for, for, for how long. So, so, uh, so there's many things that uh, I w- would be able to do if I didn't have the... Uh, financial uh, elements to take care of that I have today. And, and that would be the same for the rest of the people. So we can do much more for each other, hopefully, um, in, in many, many ways, because, uh, you know, self-realization and, and the social part, I think, would be where we would have our focus. So I'm trying to envision or picture this world. Who's actually making the money from those AI employee-less organizations? Yeah, and that is a good question uh, because there is uh, the uh, distribution of wealth because, uh, yes, the world will be 10 times richer, but who would own the value that is going to be created by AI? Uh, and that is something that we have to uh, find a way of regulating because the risk could be that now we have the the, the tech millionaires who have very big uh, fortunes and then you could have AI millionaires that could be like 10 times richer than them uh, so, so a very few people could risk uh, controlling everything and becoming extremely wealthy, and then you can have the rest of us who wouldn't be. So, so we have to find a way of regulating this within the market mechanism somehow. 
It's going to, that's a very interesting conversation. I know we could have for hours after this. And I, I will definitely tell you, like, I am hundred percent a capitalist at heart, like all the way. However, I've been thinking a lot recently about things like Elon Musk is saying, for example, of about how some of these top companies may start this, at least, you know, his company may start paying, essentially paying workers salaries to get them out of the way of innovation. Like this idea of universal basic income or the, this idea that private companies, not necessarily uh, you know governments regulating, but private companies would be paying people who don't have the capability to work with AI, for example, or don't have this innovative curiosity would essentially pay them to stay out of the way of innovation. And I could almost see a world where that that distribution of wealth is not happening because they're, it's being regulated. It's happening because these private companies are choosing as a competitive advantage to pay people, say it's, you know, I don't know, $500 million a year in salaries to get people out of the way of AI so that they're not, you know, so that they can still live their lives, but they're not in the way of the innovation that AI is going to exponentiate. So I, Anyway, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on that because I, I I could see essentially, you know, me and my my very capitalist self, um, people like me realizing that there is an incredible opportunity for capitalism to be redefined as well, where this idea of value creation and and reaching for, you know, the highest value out of something and, and competition is going to be completely redefined. And maybe that competition is no longer the best product, fastest to market, you know, all the things we define competition as. Um, maybe it's now who can get their AI as as far up to speed as possible so that they run out their competitors, then they essentially pay all the people who aren't going to help them advance just to stay out of the way of innovation. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I know I just opened a can Actually, of worms. I, you, you said the word, uh, and that's competition. And I think uh, also I'm a capitalist as well. And you have to make sure that the competition can function in a way that, that, that works because the problem is that then uh, if AI creates monopolies, then it's bad for everybody. So, uh, and, and capitalism only works uh, when you have free competitive markets. So I think talking about uh, regulations, the regulations should be in a way so we ensure that we have free and regular uh, and, and competitive markets. So, so that there's no, nobody that has a monopoly on a, on a certain area, because if, if, uh, if a company can, uh, can meet fair competition, then, uh, I think we are in a good place. So true. So true. And it's it's almost like <clears throat> harking back to the days when the railroads were being built or yes. even the first industrial revolution, right? We had to control the monopolies and regulate those. But goodness, the wealth that they generated and created is the foundation, at least for my country. And then looking at what, you know, how it impacted Europe even before then, like there's just so many parallels that I think even if someone's having trouble grasping what AI is going to do to the economy, can you can look back at history and see these major, major pivotal sh uh, shifts that happened. So, wow, <laughs> this is, this is a, why aren't we having this conversation more? Like, why aren't more people talking about this? Because this is, this is the future of business. It is, but it's, it's more than that because it's, it's actually also the future of the society because you, you cannot have a sustainable society where, where the people who live in it uh, is uh, too unequal. 
if you have too many people who are who are too poor and don't have uh, enough opportunities, then eventually this society will will destroy itself. And you, if you look into history, that that will always happen. And and that's one of the reasons why a civilization is is going to die uh, is when they reach that state. So it's also a matter of actually our civilization's survival to make sure that this happens. I'm so glad you weren't a priest. <laughs> we get to have these conversations wow i this is mind-opening pair i'm sure we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours um but thank you so much for having this this open conversation i there's so many other questions i i could ask you but i i need to get through reading the book too because i i definitely read some chapters like the ones that stood out to me and i was just like wow there's so much in here and so much that i'm gonna take forward to, you know, CEOs that I'm working with who are, you know, they're still asking the tactical questions, right? Like the very, very bare minimum. And, and, and they, you know, many of, many of whom still think that what COVID did for us in the tech space, you know, really, really pushed us forward. And granted it did, but if that's, if it takes that type of event to to become a modern organization or to to get over this hump how much more is it going to take another major event to get us into this space which is a this is a new horizon like this ai the world of ai we're i have a feeling we're only seeing the the bare we're, we're scratching the surface we're seeing the iceberg we're not seeing anything underneath the water yet and it's just this is going to be massive so thank you for having this with me yeah, you're welcome. It was good uh, talking to you, definitely. Yeah, so please come back and we'll have to continue this this conversation more because I, I can definitely tell there there's going to be a lot of questions, not just from me, but from from everybody in my sphere who are, who are trying to figure this thing out. It's true. And actually, we haven't even started yet, the way I see it. Uh, and that, that's also why I wrote the book, because uh, exactly as you said, uh, people ask me technic- uh, tactical questions on how to use AI and I was just thinking, you have no idea. Uh, you, you need to have perspective of, of, of what's going on and it's difficult to communicate in PowerPoints. So so that's, you know, to me, it was like a mental exercise to write the book, to get it out of my head, to, to put it into a framework and say, this is actually how I see things. Uh, so, so this is what you have to look into and prepare for, you know, brace for impact. That's what's going to happen. I'm so glad you did because it did help. It helped me wrap my mind around it as, you know, a business owner myself to think not just about what's, you know, one foot in front of me, but what's coming down, down the horizon, down the road that I need to be thinking about. Um, because you're right. This, this topic is so broad and I, I, I know we have yet to see how it's truly going to impact us. We can speculate, but this is, this is going to be a new world, a new frontier. Um, so before, before you go, let me ask you this one more thing. So what are some of the, the questions or topics that I need to be asking or that, you know, maybe there's other, uh, other thought leaders too, who are talking about, you know, leading, leading the way, paving the path for this type of dialogue, who are some other heck guests that I should have on here talking about like the repercussions, whether it's ethical or moral or the, um, the continuation of, of this and how businesses can prepare. Like who are some other people you highly respect who have, who have thoughts on this? Um, I haven't met anybody in, in the business. There's a lot of academics who talk about uh, AI and there's a book called life 3.0, which is really good. 
um, and and it's it's about also the future consequences uh, of of AI, but it's more on the academical technical side. Um, so so I I recommend uh, reading that book. Um, but on on the business side, I don't think that there is that many who has uh, focused on sort of the strategic elements. And that's actually also why I wrote, I wrote the book because. You know, I got the questions you got, and then uh, my first instinct was, okay, I, I need to find a book that that sort of can explain this, and I couldn't. Um, so, so there's a lot of academics and a lot of uh, operational books on how to work with AI, um, but not so many business business books. Okay, well, goldmine then. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, goldmine. Okay, well, if you if you think of anybody too, because obviously I'd love to have you back on the show to keep talking about this, but. Um, if there's anybody that needs needs to have a voice in this, literally, who's who's saying like, the, these are what the most forward thinking organizations and communities are thinking about and are doing and how they're acting like that. Those are the types of people who who need a voice um, here because that that is literally how we're going to to shape our future and that is yeah it's critical but I think you should you should look in the academic world because that that's where the thinkers are in, in this perspective uh, so so they but they have sort of a some of them have as an ethical view just we as we talked about and others look into society but there's not that many who's made the link between uh, organizations and management and and ai but there's a lot of good. I can send you some links afterwards for for the good academics, so you can have a look at them. And there's some good TED talks as well um, that that is explaining a lot of this here. So that's what I would suggest that you would, you would go into to explore more about this. Okay, that sounds good. Yes, definitely send me what you have because I I know so many companies who could who could benefit from this, and um, and I also think it's. <laughs> It's almost like what you're describing. If the academics are the ones thinking about this the most, then maybe it's we're we're in a world of science fiction. Like we're we're getting there pretty quickly. Where where maybe it's the I, I push for this frequently. Where reading science fiction, reading books like Ender's Game and uh, Ready Player One, like those types of books where these authors have literally envisioned what the future could look like. I'm watching some of those things come to fruition. Like I'm watching them happen. And so many business owners are are so prone to, to leave those books in their childhood, right? Leave leave behind the the types of visioning and, and stories and 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 fiction that is truly how we paint a vision of where we want to go as a society. So that's a learning I'm gonna take from this too is just read read science fiction and read what what the people the minds that like you who are like setting this this future setting the stage for what's to come what they're saying about the future because literally we could make that our reality yeah that's true well thank you so much for coming on pierre i i'm uh, excited to share this with with the world yes i think it was a good talk and i hope uh, you enjoyed it i did thank you very much Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <music> <laughs>